0: Part of the reason why I wanted to, to preach on this is, like most of us, can't help but look around and see um, that our culture is divided, that there are so many topics. A matter of fact, there's a growing number of topics that are, are polarizing these days, and there's growing division uh, in our country. It's becoming increasingly difficult to have civil conversations with people that, on things that you disagree with without assuming the worst about their motives or their beliefs, Uh, And without vilifying each other. And we need to just recognize the fact that the church is not immune to this. There are plenty of opportunities um, right now and in the future that could cause division. Division within the church universal, division within tabernacle, uh, division within our denomination. So how do we protect ourselves against this? How do we promote and defend unity within the church? And if we continue to promote unity, if we continue to be a unified body, what kind of impact can that have on our culture? Well, these are the type of questions that we are going to wrestle with this morning, and Paul provides us with clear answers to them in Ephesians 4. So I ask you to stand in honor of God's Word, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4. This is the Word of God, and it is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Let us pray. Oh, well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision, this charge for the church, to be who we truly are, to be one, to be unified. Lord, I pray that you might use this time not only to, to the of Christ, Lord, I pray that you might continue to grow us in unity, that you'd protect us from division. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this weekend we finally got to experience a glimpse of summer. Right? We finally had some some hot weather. Winter, actually, I can I think I can safely say winter is finally over. Um, and if you have kids like we do, my age, uh, our kids' age, you know, one of the things that they are are looking forward to is when the swimming pool is open. They love going to the pool during the summer. It's one of their favorite things they like to do. Uh, in many ways, it's it's sort of their sanctuary from the summer heat. It's an opportunity for them to get out of the heat and to enjoy time in the water, to be refreshed and to be cooled down. Well, yesterday we got a powerful reminder of this because we were invited uh, to go to Stewart's Draft Elementary School. They had a a carnival, and friends of ours invited us to come and join them. And, And so they had different activities and bounce houses and various things. But they also had a whole slew of carnival games, and one of the carnival games they had is they had a, a baby pool filled with water, had little rubber duckies all in it. It's one of those games where if you, you get to choose one ducky, and if there's a symbol on the bottom, then you get a prize. Well, Sam, our youngest, he's two years old, um, he kept looking over at that pool. And, and Jenny and I, we literally took our eyes off him for no more than two seconds. And next thing we know, he full speed, beelined, belly flopped into the pool. And ducks went flying. So he saw his sanctuary, and he ran for it. And there was going to be no stopping him. There was going to be no hindering him. He did not care what people thought. And as I was reflecting upon that, I'm like, you know, that's actually a good illustration of our desire for the church. Not the church just in general, but actually desire. We should desire to come together regularly, to meet with brothers and sisters, to come to worship God. No matter what anyone thinks, we should not let anything get in our way of meeting together. Because the church is important. And this is what Paul is addressing here in chapter 4. It's interesting, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul talks about, uh, really the gospel, he talks specifically about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done uh, for us, and then he shifts gears starting in chapter 4, and through the rest of the letter, he he basically starts talking about what are the implications of the gospel. How are we to live our lives um, in light of what Jesus has done for us? Um, And so... That's what we were focusing on in chapter 4. This is where he begins this discussion about how do we live our lives based upon what Jesus has done for us. And what is the first exhortation he gives to us? We see this in verse 1. It says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And that's what Paul is going to unfold. But I want you to notice where he starts. He starts with church unity. In other words, one of the primary ways that we should respond to what Jesus has done for us is by pursuing unity within the church. And that's going to be our focus this morning. How can the church have unity while we live in the midst of a culture that is growing more and more divided? In order for us to do that, we need to start with the right foundation. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. Let me read those again for you. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs in your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So when you, when you hear those verses read, what, what jumps out to you? What strikes you? What do you think Paul wants us to hear? And I want you to actually answer that question. What strikes you? What jumps out to you about those three verses? One, yeah, right. You can't miss it. He uses the term one, the word one, seven times in three. You see, he actually pairs these ones into two, two sets. And the first pair of ones all point us to God. There is one Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. There is one Lord, referring to Jesus, the Son. And there is one God and Father, pointing to, to God our Father. And the other set of pairs, the other four, are referring to the church. They're pointing to us, that the church is one body with one hope one faith, and one baptism. And he's using these two pairs to make a powerful point about the importance of the unity of the church. Because we are all one in Christ as believers. And the first pair, the one that point to God, establishes the foundation of this unity, while the second pair shows us sort of the implications of that unity, the implications of this foundation that we have. But I want to look at the first pair first. That there is one spirit, one Lord, and one Father. Now Paul is making a theological statement. He's recalling the great truth that's found in Deuteronomy 6:4 which says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." This is one of the earliest decrees of the church. It's, it's one of their foundational beliefs that the Lord is one. This is something that every Israelite would have known and have heard over and over again, that God is one. And yet Paul is showing us that God is also three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's referencing the Trinity here, that there is one Spirit, one Lord, and one Father, and and yet there are also one God. And the more we understand this, the more we understand that God is three in one, the more we see that that is the foundation to our unity, that is foundational to our call to be unified. Why does that matter? Why does the Trinity matter? Well, in order to see this more clearly, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1, we read about God creating the world. And in Genesis 1:26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Human beings, we are all created in the image of God. And we see that God create man in our image. What are the implications of that? It means that we, by nature, we are created to be relational. We are created to be relational beings. God exists perfectly in a relationship within himself. He is relational. And we're created in his image. In other words, we were created to be in relationship not only with him, but with each other, with others. That is our true nature. And that becomes even more clear if you, if you move on to Genesis 2. In verse 18 it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. After God created everything, he looked down upon his creation and he said, It is all good. It is all very good. Until we get to this verse. Why? Because Adam was created as a relational being and he was incomplete until God provided a helper fit for him. He needed somebody to be in relationship with because that is how he was designed. He was created that way. And that is one of the ways that we as humans reflect the image of God. God exists within the perfect relationship within himself, and we too are called to exist in relationships with others. The Trinity is foundational to unity. Every one of you is born as a relational being. Therefore, we need each other. We are actually not complete without one another. And so back in the beginning, God created Adam in his image, and then he created in his image. And Adam and Eve, they were in relationship with God, but they were also in relationship with one another. And there was unity. They were in union with God and each other. And it was all very good. But then we get to Genesis 3. And we get to the fall. We get to, to sin. When sin enters the world, this unity became broken. Satan came and he tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. He tempted them with, with this, this promise that if they do, if they eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will become like God themselves. God and it was on each other. It was always outwardly focused. They were outwardly focused. But sin reverses that. Once they fell into sin, they, become, they became self centered and self focused. And we see that right away. When God confronts them for their sin, what do they do? Adam says, well, it's not my fault, it's my wife's fault. Eve says, well, it's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. They don't, take, they don't own their own sin, instead they blame others. So their nature now has been damaged, it's fallen. They were in union with God and with each other, but that union is now broken. Man is now incomplete. We are no longer whole because of sin. The unity we are created to have, the relationships we are created to have are now broken. Because that's what sin does. Sin destroys relationships. Sin causes division. And God takes this very seriously. Listen to these words from Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Division is a serious thing. So what are some of the ways that we might stir up division within the church? It might be through gossip. gossip The basic definition of gossip is sharing information about people that you don't have permission to share. And we as Christians, we are creative at at gossiping about each other. It may come in the forms of, well, you need to pray for this person because let me tell you what's going on in their lives. So we turn gossip into a holy thing, but it's still gossip. We cause division through slandering one another, you know, talking bad about somebody, basically trying to put somebody else down, and, and we do that ultimately because by putting others down, it makes us look and feel better. Division can also be brought on because of unforgiveness—that we're unwilling to forgive somebody who has sinned against us—and and that's hard. When you get sinned against, it hurts. There's damage done. But we are called not to forgive others because they're worthy of it. We are called to forgive others because Christ has forgiven you. Because of unrepentance, there's lots of things that can cause, uh, that can become obstacles to unity. But if you think about all of those things, there's something they have in common. They're all self-centered. They're all selfish and self-focused. Because sin causes us to think that we are the center of our own universe. Everything is about us. And that really goes back to that first sin, doesn't it? Ultimately, we all want to be God. And that is what destroyed unity in the first place. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Great Divorce. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. It's, just, it's a wonderful little book. It's, it's really an allegory about heaven and hell. And one of the things that he describes in that book is called Gray Town. Uh, and it's a picture of hell. And when you read about this town, the way it's described, it's just it's a joyless place. It's gray because the weather is always bad. But one of the interesting things about this place is that the town center is relatively empty. And that's because everybody continues to move further and further away from each other because nobody likes each other. Nobody wants to be around anyone else. And so they continue to move further and further and further out. So the city is actually this huge city, but nobody lives anywhere near each other. And that is a picture, Lewis is is writing that as a picture of what sin does. Sin separates us. It drives us further and further away from one another because it turns our focus inwardly. We care only about ourselves. We become more selfish and more self-centered. And so as a result of that, we become less and less of what we were created to be. And it leaves a giant hole within us. So what should we do about this? How can that be changed? Well, the only way this is possible, the only way that we can be made whole again is for sin to be dealt with. If sin is what divides us, sin must be taken care of and the effects of sin must be undone. And there's nothing that we can do about that. But thankfully there is something Jesus can do and he has done it. True and lasting unity is only possible through him and this brings us back to verses four and six. As I said, that first pair of one and the second pair of ones, it points to the church. More specifically, one reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, that because of Jesus there is one body And as one body, we have one hope and one faith and one baptism. Jesus accomplished this through his perfect righteous life, through his atoning death, and through his resurrection. Paul alludes to this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, "...in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ." as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus came to unite all things in him. He came to redeem us. Yes, our sins are forgiven in him, and the results of our sins are being overturned. And you have been united to Christ. Your relationship to God has been restored through Christ. You've been adopted into his family. But not only that, but you have also been united to each other as the church we are one body unity has been restored see the moment that you place your faith in christ you become a member of this body you become a member of christ's body of the church that's not optional it's not something that you had a choice about that is who you are every one of us if you're a believer in christ you are part of the body of christ And not only that, but as Paul goes on to tell us, as the body of Christ, we also share in the one hope. And this is the hope that he alludes to. It's the hope that Jesus will return, and when he returns, he's going to finish this work of uniting all things to himself. And it's not wishful thinking. It is a promise. Jesus will return. When he returns, he will set all things right, and all things will be united to him. We will truly be one and that is our hope. It is a hope that we all share as believers. We also share in one faith. Paul is not really talking specific contents of our faith, of what we believe. In other words, there are certain foundational truths that we must believe in order to be saved. There are not multiple ways of salvation. There are not multiple ways or paths to God. There is one gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel that everyone must believe in order to be saved. It is the one truth or the one faith that we share. And finally, because of Jesus, we share in one baptism. Now, Paul's using the word here, not necessarily to talk about a particular mode or method of baptism. He's talking about the work of the Spirit to seal us, to seal us in our union with Christ. That we've been baptized into Christ and baptized into His body by the Holy Spirit, which means that our salvation is, our unity in Christ and his church, it's absolutely and completely guaranteed because it's not determined by us. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals us in Christ. He's the one who holds us together. So because of Jesus, because of what he has done, unity is not just simply a possibility, it's a reality. We are unified. We are one. We are united in Christ into each other. And because of Christ, we, do have, we are part of one body and we have one faith. We have one baptism, and we have one hope. And this is a great blessing. But it does beg the question, why did God do this? Why did God choose to take a bunch of sinful, fallen men and women and unite us together as one, to unite us to His Son? One commentator, Peter O'Brien, answers the question this way. He says, his universal rule is being exercised to fulfill his ultimate purpose of unifying all things in Christ. The unity of the church is the means by which the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to the universe. The church is the eschatological outpost, the pilot project of God's purposes, and his people are the expression of this unity that displays to the universe his final goal. So in other words, the unity of the church is for all the world to see and a let me try to illustrate this imagine for a moment imagine that you found yourself in a absolute pitch black room one of these places where you literally could not even see your hand in front of you or held in in front of holding it in front of you just utter absolute darkness now how would you feel in that situation it'd be disoriented it'd be a little scary well, the truth is, this is how you were described if, if you don't know Jesus, or even before you came to know Jesus, is that you live in darkness. But once we, become, once we come to Jesus, once we come to the light of the world, we are given light. So imagine if you're in that room and everybody suddenly you know, has a flashlight. But we take that flashlight, each one of us individually, we just kind of flash it all around, kind of look around. Yeah, we might be able to see some things ourselves, but what would that kind of look like as a whole? It would still be kind of chaotic. And as we're kind of doing this, trying to figure ourselves around, where is the attention being drawn? It's to the individuals. It's to ourselves. That is, sort of a, that is a picture of the church when it's divided. It's a picture of the church not walking in unity. But when we come together as a unified church, all of our light shining together, we become a focused light. We be, our attention is focused on one thing, and particularly one person that our light is shining together on Jesus, and we can see much more clearly. And the world who's looking in on us can see Jesus through us. It is like a more clearly. That is a picture of what the church looks like when it's walking in unity. It is like a beam of light that points to Jesus. And this is why unity in the church is so important. It is also why unity in church is a blessing. Because when we are walking together in unity, we shine a bright light onto Jesus to do. Jesus has united us together as church so that we would display His glory and so that we would draw other people to Him. We can't do that if we're divided. Now there's a problem, and that is that we don't always do this well, do we? When we're not walking in unity, when the church is divided, our purpose is hindered. The unity, yes, the unity of the church, it's, it's eternally secured through Christ. It's something that we should never forget. It gives us great hope. However, the physical and visible display of that unity certainly can wax and wane. It can waver based upon how well we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And this is why Paul gives us this exhortation in verses 1 through 3. He says that we are exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul tells us that we should be eager to maintain unity. He's using really strong language here. He's Literally, he's telling us that you should make every effort to pursue unity within the church. You need to be totally dedicated to this. Spare no expense, spare no energy in pursuing unity within the church. So how do we do this? How do we pursue unity in the church? Well, first we do this by actually being together, by spending time together, by gathering together as God's people. So don't isolate yourself because you're not created to be alone. We are created to be in relationship with each other. And the church is the primary place for us to do this. The church is it's the assembly of God's people. This is where we assemble as his people, and we assemble to worship him together. So we're we're called to gather together in person regularly. And if that's not a priority of yours, then something probably needs to change. Is gathering with God's people a priority? Paul then goes on to provide us with other ways that we can grow in our unity. And the first is humility. Humility is thinking lowly of ourselves and highly of Christ it's understanding that you are not the center of your universe. Humility gives us a proper perspective of who we really are and it orients us through gentle to other. Gentleness shapes the way that we deal with other people. It means being tender and sensitive to other people's needs, having compassion for people regardless of what we think about them, regardless of who they are, what their background is. And that's not always going to be easy because we are all sinners. And we will disagree with one another. We will hurt one another. We will sin against one another. We're not immune to that even as the church. Which is why Paul includes patience. We also need to grow in patient. patience. And that's where Paul goes next. Patience means loving somebody for the long haul regardless of how difficult it might be at times. It means having a long fuse, being quick or slow to anger and quick to listen. And ultimately we are called to love one another. And that's not easy either, which is why Paul actually uses the term that we are to bear with one another in love. He's talking about forbearance, that we need to have forbearance to love one another. And to do that, it requires humility. It requires gentleness. It requires patience and forbearance. Those are the building blocks to unity. And what do all those things have in common? Well, first, they are other focused They're focused on others, not ourselves. As I said earlier, sin, sin turns out inward. It makes us selfish and self-centered. And the gospel frees us from this. It reorients us so that we think of others more than we think of ourselves. Secondly, we need to remind, be reminded that all of these virtues are exemplified in and through Jesus. And this is so important for us to understand why. Because Jesus is not simply our example of these things. He's also our foundation. He's the source of these things. So in other words, we can grow in humility because Jesus humbled himself for you. You can grow in gentleness because Jesus has been gentle with you. You can grow in patience because Jesus has been patient with you. We can bear with others in love because Jesus, the unity of the church is secure because of Jesus. And our ability to walk in unity is made possible only because of him. So what does that actually look like? How do we do that? Well, first, we just need to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of of who we were apart from Christ before Jesus redeemed us, that we were sinners, that we were enemies of God, that we were alienated, that we were objects of His wrath. But definitely don't stop there. Then we need to remind ourselves of who we are because of Christ, what He has done for us, that we are now saints, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are in union with Christ. And we are objects of His blessing. That is how we walk in unity. We continue to look to Jesus. We are already united to Christ. And we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of that union with Christ. To reflect the fact that we are united to Christ. And we reflect that by showing our unity to one another. And that can only be done within the context of the church. There was a story I read many years ago. I, I might have shared this with you once before. Um, it's attributed to D.L. Moody, but no one knows for sure if it was from him. But it was about a pastor who was going to visit one of his members who he had not seen in a long period of time and just wanted to check in on him. And you know, they sat by the fireplace and were talking for a bit. And finally, the pastor just asked him, like, why haven't we seen you at church in a long time? And his response was, well, I don't, I don't really need church. I'm, I'm good by myself. And so the pastor sat there for a minute, didn't say anything, but he picked up a pair of tongs and he took a coal out of the fire. And the coal was red and hot. He took it out and he placed it on the hearth outside of the fire. And they both men just sat there and stared at it. And they watched it go from red hot and slowly turned into this black, cold piece of coal. And that was a picture he was giving of what it was like when we remove ourselves from the church. Then he took that coal again, and he put it back in the fire, and they watched as it turned from black back to this bright red coal, and it became part of the fire, and it provided heat and light to come together when we are unified as the church. And apparently it worked because that man was in church the following Sunday. But there is a growing trend in our culture today that basically says church, church is not necessary. I mean, it's a good option if, you're, if you need something like that, but church really is optional. And if you do profess faith, you know, your faith, it's a personal thing. It's just you and Jesus. That's all that matters. It's Just you and Jesus. But God did not save you to be alone. He saved you to be a part of his people. To be a part of the body of Christ, which is the church. However imperfect the church is, we are called to be one. We're created to be in relationship with God. We are also created to be in relationship with one another. And that is the only way that will ever be complete and fulfilled and whole. Jesus is the one that makes this possible through his life, death, and resurrection. And he enables us now to walk in unity as the church. And as we do this, as we walk together as one, our witness to the world would grow brighter and brighter. And the glory of Christ would be seen more and more clearly. But this is only possible if we as individuals and as, as the church universal, if we seek day by day to die to self and to live to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to end with this. I just want to encourage you that this is possible. It is possible despite the divided culture we live in, despite and hurt against one another. It is possible that the church can be one. Because this is what Jesus himself prays for the church. We find this in his high priestly prayer in, in John 17. This is what he prays for you. He prays the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. This is what Jesus is praying for you even now. Let it be so. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for providing we've been adopted into His family. Lord, but we also recognize that, yes, we have been saved as individuals, but we've also been saved to, to be united to Christ and to be united to one another as the body of Christ. And Lord, we know that your body of Christ is, is imperfect, and still full of sinners who hurt one another. But Lord, I do pray that you would protect us against division and divide, and that you would remind us that we are all one in Christ and that we belong to you and that we need one another. Lord, I pray that you would humble us, that you would grow us in patience, that you would grow us in gentleness, that you enable us more and more to bear with one another in love. And as we do this and as we grow in unity, I pray that our light would shine more and more bright towards Jesus and that the world in which we live, which is so divided, may see the unity of the church and may that draw them to him, that they may come to know him. We pray this in his name. Amen.